0: We've got two readings this morning. We're starting with the book of Philippians, chapter two, reading verses one to 13. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my friends, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And from Matthew chapter 1, Uh, We're reading 23 to 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons, He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Friends, shall we pray? Loving God, we do want to thank you for your word to us. And we pray that as we reflect on it now, you would send upon us the gift of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to the word that you want us to receive today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, my name is Malcolm, and friends, it's really uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, The reason why I'm here is not so good, though. Um, Some of you uh, may uh, know Canon Ian Parkinson, um, who was due to be here this morning. And um, uh, you may not know, but I I think probably word is getting around now, that sadly, Ian had a stroke on Monday morning uh, and was taken into the Hallamshire Hospital. Um, The good news is that as the week has progressed, there have been signs of improvement. But uh, so Ian um, is still very ill in hospital. He has been moved now uh, to the stroke unit rather than being on critical care. So that is, again, is a good sign. But uh, please do continue to hold uh, Ian, his wife, Nadine, and uh, their family in your prayers uh, over these coming weeks. So I'm afraid um, that you've got me this morning. And some of you might be wishing you'd skipped church uh, instead of coming. Uh, I guess, but as a church leader, I've become well-adjusted to the fact that you cannot please everyone, uh, and I take comfort from the fact that even Jesus knew that to be true. Picture the scene, if you will. Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple courts teaching people. Just, let's just pause for a moment. I wonder what picture you have. If you're imagining a place with people sat in rows like we are, uh, then that's not how it was at all. The temple courts were public places where people gathered informally, probably more like the back of the church where we will have tea and coffee afterwards, or, or the pub even, but without a bar and alcohol. People gathered just to talk about life and faith in the temple courts. And so this was Jesus uh, with a small group of people around him, and as he spoke, the group got bigger because people were interested in the conversation that was happening. He was in the temple courts talking, and the small crowd was getting bigger and bigger, and Jesus acknowledged the crowd gathering and began to teach them. The temple authorities, however, became aware of this group, and they didn't like it. Jesus seemed to be popular, much more popular, perhaps, than they were. But more worryingly still, he spoke and he acted with such authority that they threatened to undermine their own influence among the people. If you read this passage in the context, only a few verses previously, Jesus had entered the temple and cleansed it, overturning the money tables. You'll remember uh, that story. And uh, the temple authorities were nervous about who this man was who was gaining such popularity amongst uh, the people. And all of this was happening on their turf, in the temple courtyards, This Jesus simply had to be stopped, or at the very least challenged to think again about what he was doing and the effect of it. It's astonishing, isn't it, when you stop to think about it? Jesus was clearly helping people to know God, to understand their faith better. He was doing exactly what people did in the temple courts, having those conversations, gathering people, teaching them as any rabbi would do. In other words, if God's agenda is to call people back to him as the religion of the religious leaders would have said, then this man Jesus seemed to be doing exactly the stuff of God. It was as if the religious leaders were saying one thing with their fine words and their meticulous religious practices, but behaving in an entirely different way, motivated not by God's purposes, but by their own self-interest. In the other reading we heard read for us from the uh, letter to the Philippians, Paul was writing to a church in danger of becoming dysfunctional through factions and self-interest. Such growing disunity threatened to undo the good work that had been achieved and undermine their witness in Philippi. And as Paul heard about this from Epaphroditus, he simply couldn't sit by and do nothing. So he wrote to them the letter that we have in front of us. Reminding them of Jesus' example, imploring them to act in love, humility, and fellowship towards one another. The silver lining, if you like, in the cloud of this dysfunctional church is that we are left with a wonderful ancient hymn about Christ's humility and lordship. I'm slightly embarrassed to share this story, but whenever I read these opening verses of Philippians 2, I'm reminded of an early lesson that I had in Christian leadership when I was a student at York University and was leading the Christian Union there as the president of the CU. And on this particular occasion, I was chairing a tricky meeting of the executive committee. Uh, There was a thorny issue that we couldn't quite agree on. And after much rehearsing and re-rehearsing of the arguments, we seemed to be going nowhere. Of course, my view was the correct view. And although most of the committee members I'd managed to get on board, there were still some that I just could not convince to to get on board with the right view. So as um, a person of spiritual leadership, I suggested that we did the right thing. We stopped, we paused to pray and reflect for a few minutes on what, what God might be saying to us in the midst of this conflict. As we were praying, these opening verses from Philippians 2 about humility and unity came into my mind, precisely what those who disagreed with me needed to hear, I thought. You can, you can see where I'm going with this, can't you? So I turned to the passage and I began reading it aloud. I think the Lord wants us to hear this. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. As I was reading those words, I sensed God speaking directly to me of course, I carried on reading the passage because I couldn't admit it at that point. But it was a sense in which this is for you. And uh, the good news is that the atmosphere of the meeting from that point changed radically, uh, not because everybody fell into line with my view, but because I felt kind of chastened by God and changed the way that I was leading the discussion. We did reach a decision. That's the good news. I'm not going to tell you if it was the one that I wanted us to reach or not. Friends, in those times when we disagree with one another in church, and those times will come, and they're probably here in this church fellowship because they're here in every church fellowship, we do well to remember that the antidote to disunity is humility, recognizing that all of us are dependent on God's grace. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul writes, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Why? Because Christ, who we worship as Lord and seek to imitate as his disciples, refused to exploit his divinity, humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our model and our pattern. Back to our gospel reading. The religious leaders who challenged Jesus then were not doing this out of faithfulness. They might have thought they were, but really this was full of their own self-importance. They were just simply focused on establishing their own authority and closing this man down. But in his usual enigmatic way, Jesus avoided answering their question about where his authority came from, and instead he told them a story, a story about two sons, one of whom said that he would do what his father asked him to do but didn't, and the other who said he wouldn't do what he'd been asked to do but later changed his mind and did it. Jesus then directed a question towards them, Which of the sons did what his father wanted? Not exactly a tricky question. But then Jesus wasn't trying to trip them up. He wasn't trying to win an argument. He was simply challenging their attitude. You see, in direct contrast to the religious leaders controlling and closing down no attitude, it can't happen. Jesus majors his story on the yes responses of the central characters. And in doing so, he highlighted three important things about that yes. And for the next few minutes, as I come to close, that's what I want to major on. Don't worry, I am more than halfway through. If you think I'm only getting to my three points now, I am more than halfway through. We're not that far off. Three important things about the yes that Jesus was highlighting in his story. The first is this. Yes is not just a word, it's an action. Now, unless it's only our children, they're grown up now, but, uh, but, but you, know, you don't have to go too far back, unless it's only our children, if you're a parent, you'll probably recognize the scenario when you call the children for tea or to help you do something, and they instant reply, coming, and then five minutes later, you're still waiting for them to arrive. There are some knowing smiles in the congregation. Yes is is pretty pointless. In fact, it's frustrating if really what you mean is no or if I can be bothered. Yes is always evidenced in action. It is more than a word. And it's just like that in our relationship with God. You see, Jesus issues an open invitation for us to know God in our lives, to join in with the things that he is doing in the world. And he doesn't just want religious types who sing the right songs and say the right words, people who might say yes, but do very little about it. Jesus is looking for world changers, people who will allow God to transform their lives and then through them to bring transformation to the world around us. People who will jump on board with God's kingdom-building mission, proclaiming the good news of God's all-inclusive love in both word and action, being good news to those they live amongst with a yes attitude. In short, Jesus was challenging the temple officials to put their money where their mouth is. They claimed to follow a loving God, and yet their actions didn't back this up. They proved themselves to be self-serving people, defending their status, their institution, their tradition, rather than God-interested people building His kingdom. And it's all too easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Especially when kingdom ministry involves change. You see, change is never easy when we're happy and comfortable with what we currently have. But God is not a static God. God is in the business of transformation. And unless we are already perfect, or unless our church community is already perfect, change is inevitable, because that's what God does with us. God-interested people in churches will embrace kingdom change that God brings. Self-serving people in churches will usually resist, so yes is more than a word, it's an action, and secondly, Jesus' story revealed that a genuine yes can actually come after a no, and it can still count as a yes, that's what the story was all about. See, God allows us to change our minds, we're never written off when God is concerned. Some of us here may be aware of having said no to God at some point in our lives. In fact, most of us here will probably be aware of that. Some of us here may be aware of still saying no to God about some aspect of their lives. But the good news is that God never excludes you because of your no. The son who said no in Jesus' story ended up being the very one who actually did what his father wanted. Why? Because he changed his mind. He got up and he went. It is never too late where God is concerned. God is far more interested in people making a genuine and honest response to his invitation, even if it takes time, than he is in superficial faith or worship. Following this parable, Jesus issued his striking judgment on the self-serving religious leaders. Truly, I tell you, he said, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? because they believed John's message, whereas you, the religious leaders, rejected him. And even when given the opportunity to change your mind, you refuse to turn your no into a yes. And this leads me on to my final observation. So yes is more than a word. Yes can follow no. And finally, Jesus shows us that yes is at the very heart of God. Jesus says yes to anyone who wants to follow him, without exception. Why did Jesus specifically refer to tax collectors and prostitutes? Because these two groups of people were the ones most despised and marginalized by the religious of his day, and including these temple officials. Tax collectors were regarded as traitors against their own people, collecting taxes for the Romans that were occupying their land and reporting anyone who wouldn't pay. Prostitutes were regarded as morally and ceremonially unclean, those who literally sold their bodies into sin. There was no room in God's kingdom for people like this, or so the chief priests and elders would have thought. But Jesus teaches that it's precisely these people who are entering the kingdom of God ahead of the religious leaders. Their yes is evidenced in their changed lives. And Jesus includes them because yes is at the very heart of God. As we also read in our Philippians verses, unlike the temple officials, Jesus didn't come wielding his credentials but came in humility to demonstrate the amazing love that God has for all people, for you and for me in living for others, laying down his life. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And he did that for us. And so, friends, as I end, I wonder, what is your response, what is my response to this Jesus and his open invitation to know him, to follow him, and to join in with this mission of love. Is it a yes? And if so, what type of yes is it? Is it a superficial yes? Or is it one that impacts every part of your life, every relationship you have, every attitude you harbor, every decision you make? And friends, that yes is an invitation to God to do that in us because it won't happen overnight. Maybe your response at the moment is a no. And the good news is that even if it is, Jesus doesn't give up on you. He will continue to issue that invitation, continue to hold his arms outstretched to welcome you into that relationship with him because our no doesn't exclude us from God's amazing love. But I would want to say to you this morning, why miss out? Why miss out on experiencing this love and being caught up with God's work of sharing it with others? Jesus says a big yes to you. How do you respond to him? Shall we just hold a moment of quiet?